Hi, this is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. We're a local D.C. show that focuses on foreign and domestic policy, national politics, and culture. We're going to have three guests, Carl Higby, who's the founder of the George Washington Leadership Foundation, Will Thomas, founder of Operation Hawkeye, and Aparna Mather, a resident scholar in economic policy at the American Enterprise Institute. You're not going to want to miss this. I'm Gail Trotter, and here's what I think. President-elect Donald Trump is receiving a huge amount of criticism for his picks for his cabinet and his senior-level administrative positions. The criticism is varied, but there's one particular criticism that really galls me. He is receiving criticism from all the usual suspects about his picks of United States veterans for these top cabinet and senior positions in his administration. It's really astonishing that he would be criticized for this because he's also criticized for the fact that he doesn't have any military experience. And yet he recognizes that these people who served in leadership positions in our military have an experience that should be capitalized and to the benefit of the American people during his administration. You know, our defense and our military services have been sidelined over the last eight years. We understand that we are in a very delicate position that we have not been in since before World War II, and we know that the Trump administration wants to change that. They understand that peace through strength is not just something that you read on a bumper sticker or in a history book. It's something that enabled the United States to win the Cold War successfully. And we've seen through the last eight years a very ham-handed approach to foreign policy and to the defense of the homeland. And it is refreshing to see Donald Trump ask people like Mattis and Kelly and Michael Flynn to come and serve their country once again and use the leadership skills that they were able to develop through the support of the taxpayer in a new way, in a new era, in in a new administration that is trying to rectify the position that we find ourselves in now. These veterans have seen combat. They understand the special sacrifice that men and women make when they join the military services and they put themselves at the uh, behest of the commander-in-chief. These veterans know the, the devastating, even chilling effects that combat has, even up to the point of life, but the sacrifices that military families make in order to support the mission of our military services, they are certainly the last people who want to send any American men and women into dangerous situations, they have the best ability to analyze the situation and understand that if any particular action serves the American interest and whether or not the American soldier, the American Marine, the American sailor has the resources necessary to complete the mission, to succeed at the task given them, and to guarantee that as many uh, military service members will be protected and safe as possible, that it's done in a way that is most respectful of life and particularly American life. 
And when you think about these veterans, it's really astonishing to think about the amount of life experience that they have. They have the ability to think critically about situations. They have the ability to function under extreme stress that most human beings cannot tolerate. They have the ability to lead people, to have a clearly defined mission and the ability to inspire others to follow them into dangerous situations. So when we think about the the amazing skill set and the passion for this country and the American people and the American ideal that these veterans bring to their service in the Trump administration, we should all feel how lucky we are to have such patriotic, experienced, and dedicated people who are going to help usher us into the new administration and deal with the threats that we are facing as a nation and individually. And we all should be very, very grateful that they are willing to serve their country once again. I'm Gail Trotter, and that's what I think. Welcome back to Right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. Join us as we uncover new ideas. I'm excited to have joining me today Carl Higby, chairman of the George Washington Leadership Foundation and author of the recent book, Enemies, Foreign and Domestic. Carl, thank you so much for joining us on Right in D.C. today. Well, thanks for having me, Gail. Your book is really excellent. It goes into a lot of personal details about your childhood and what led you to want to join military service and do the very hard feat of becoming a Navy SEAL. Why did you think it was important in your book to share with readers about some of the struggles of your childhood and how that helped you to become such a determined and successful defender of the American way? Well, I, as many people might already know, Enemies Foreign and Domestic, my second book, was uh, the, the sequel to what happened to me when I published my first book, Battle on the Home Front, and, uh, which, in, in which I published a number of things that were fundamentally wrong with the chain of command structure within the DOD, but also the federal government reaching to President Obama, and soon to be not President Obama, thank God. Um, but... It was this, the, the book premise is really around my struggle at calling out the problems within a bureaucratic situation and where the military and the DOD spent more energy, resources, and time trying to keep me from exposing the problem than actually solving it. And so in, in Enemies Foreign and Domestic, I talk a little bit about my history and my upbringing, which caused me to love this country so much. And then I go into... Um, you know the, the process and the problems within the bureaucracy that we faced under the Obama administration, and uh, how to fix it. Also, so it, it, it's actually a pretty personal, a pretty moving story. Right, and some people, many people, are familiar with you from you being on TV as a commentator on politics and things about the military and policy. Uh, but some people might not be familiar with the events that led to the publication of your first book and the follow-on book. Could you give us a brief uh, explanation of the circumstances surrounding uh, your book and the situation that you found yourself in? 
Right. So um, my first book, Battle on the Homefront, I was never really actually a political person until uh, my 2009 deployment to a Fallujah, which was my second deployment as a SEAL. And at which point we were court-martialed for prisoner abuse against the black the the butcher of Fallujah, who was the Blackwater Bridge contractor guy, he hung the bodies from the bridge in Fallujah and burned uh. their bodies back early in the war. And we caught the guy who did that, and our chain of command, of course, this this terrorist, blamed us for prisoner abuse. There was no medical evidence to support his claim whatsoever, but our chain of command, out of political correctness, hung out eight decorated seals at the word of a terrorist who was going to be sentenced to death anyway um, for simply – for political reasons, and it was, it was every single commander, high up SEAL commanders too, uh, were trying to wash their hands of this, separate any allegations, and we all were court-martialed. And at that time, I became highly politicized because we saw the, the, the downtrot from the Obama administration, from the politically correct pullout, and that they were trying to put an image on the war in Iraq as over, and there were no bad guys in there. And when we caught this guy, it kind of debunked the method that there were no bad guys left. Um, and it was a really politically charged court martial. We ended up all getting acquitted, uh, which was that's great. astonishing because yeah. that's very hard to do in the military, right? I mean, you have uh, the military courts of justice, and while everyone under American law is entitled to the presumption of innocence, I would think it would be very, very difficult in a military court to have an effective ability to defend yourself, especially if there were, as you said, eight eight uh, people who were part of that situation. Absolutely. And here's the thing. In the military, you're presumed guilty until proven innocent, which is really shocking. And um, we were actually – they tried to general's masses, which is non-judicial punishment, which means the commander or the general can do whatever he wants up to a certain point, which is still very severe punishment potentially, uh, with no evidence, just on the whim. So we can we have the right to request court-martial where it's a court of law where they have to prove their findings and you have a jury and it's like an actual court uh, on a little bit different because of military standard. But we, uh, we requested the court-martial and that's when they were forced to produce evidence. Now, they flew 40 or 50 people back to Baghdad at the taxpayer's dime to prosecute this court-martial simply so they could have the terrorist testify, who was being put to death anyway, by the way. And the, the problem with this whole scenario was our SEAL commanders didn't have our back. Our generals, they put the, the image of the Iraq war and politics in front of um, – in, in front of their own men. And, and that's part of the reason why we, we're, we're losing the global war on terrorism, because we're not willing to do what it takes to actually fight this war. So when we all went to court-martial, we were all acquitted, but it was still hundreds of thousands of dollars, months and months of our time. Many of us, every, every single one of us except for one, has gotten out of the military subsequently. Um, it, it really politicized the, the, the SEAL teams so much that guys became disenfranchised and got out of the military. Right. Well, now we're seeing that Donald Trump is appointing a lot of veterans into his cabinet, mm-hmm. into senior administrative positions, having had so much experience in the military and working with so many men and women who uh, have this shared passion for America and you know willing to lay down their lives to support our freedom and having the leadership training that the military gives men and women. Do you think it's a good uh, move by Donald Trump to be putting so many veterans veterans into the administration, like, for example, Ryan Zinke. I know you're familiar with him. What, what Do you have any thoughts on this? So uh, Congressman Zinke, soon to be Secretary Zinke, a uh, very good friend of mine. He was my XO back in 2004 uh, when we were on active duty. 
Great choice. Uh, Mike Flynn, very good friend. Got to know him through the campaign. Great guy. Kellogg, great guy. These are all people. And, and honestly, they were pushed out of the Obama administration because they told it how it was. And the issue is, is that people didn't understand that they were actually speaking the truth. And it was a harsh truth. And they didn't want to be heard under the last administration. So as Trump brings them in, these are guys who are willing to sacrifice their personal career and put the country above it. And those are the people I want running the show. This is the defense dream team with Mattis, Flynn. I mean, this is this is a serious team to go win a war. A dream team. So you, you mentioned earlier that we are losing the global war on terrorism, but and you think these are the people that have enough knowledge and leadership and, as you said, the, the courage to sacrifice their personal ambition and careers in order to put the interests of the country first. You think they, they will do a good job leading us to win this war that, you know, the Obama administration has told us that there is no war anymore, but clearly that's not the case. Right. Well, the enemy gets a say on whether or not the war is over and they're still fighting. <laughs> so, you know, the, the thing is, is you have someone like Mattis, who, and my immeasurable respect for him is not because of his aggressive comments, but because of his passive comments and the fact that he said that the most important six inches on the battlefield is between your ears. This is a guy who has, unlike many current commanders in the war in Iraq, has encouraged troops to think, to use their brain before they engage their weapon, as he said also. Um, and I want people who, to really understand the dynamic of this. To, I mean, like, for instance, Syria, we have gotten so off track with Syria. There's seven or eight factors in the war in Syria that is not being understood even by the generals fighting it. And we want thinkers out there. We want guys who are outside the box, guys who understand that if you overthrow a dictator, you might have to put a 50-year troop occupancy in there just right. to maintain some sort of stability. Right. Ask Germany, ask Japan, ask, ask Korea, right? Why, why did we think that it would be any different with the Middle East than it's been in countries in Europe, which have a lot more culturally in common with the United States than the Middle Eastern countries, correct? Absolutely correct. I mean, if you overthrow Assad, we have to understand that there will be a power vacuum and it will be filled by somebody, if not by us. Yes. Yes. And I just want to move quickly to your organization. Could you tell us a little bit about its genesis and what you hope to achieve through the George Washington Leadership Foundation? So, uh, as you know, uh, your very good friend, James Aline, has come on recently as our executive director. And uh, we have... Uh, found that over the last 40 or 50 years, the decrease of veterans in Congress has attributed to the, uh, I would say, the decrease in approval rating. And the issue is that we had, I mean, 40 years ago, we had 80% of Congress were veterans. Now we have less than 20%. It just slightly ticked up during the last election. I think that's largely because of the people that supported Trump and, and saw straight through the BS in Washington. But when you have veterans, when you have people who have actually fought and put their life on the line for this country, running the show, understanding the laws and making the laws, you have a much more dedicated country to its electorate. And so I was sitting around with a couple guys and they said, we got to get more veterans in office. How can we do it? So we stood up George Washington Leadership Foundation and we've had a, you know, a few fundraisers. We helped Clay Higgins most recently in the runoff. We helped Mike Gallagher in Wisconsin. We've helped a number of folks actually take the seats back. And, um, it's so far, it's been very, relatively small because I was involved in the Trump uh, the Trump election. But it's we're we're taking it back up during uh, during the next year. We're hoping to get some candidates out there. If you're a veteran, you're looking to run for office, contact us. Go to gwlfpack.com and uh, get on our list and get in contact with us. And we'd love to vet you and see if we can help you become a candidate, give you the training, give you the skills, and give you the uh, the right people and support you financially too. 
Carl, you're doing amazing things, and I hope everyone will go to your website and support your efforts, and also any veterans out there who are interested in running for office will think about it. If they can serve their country in this new way at a time, a real, I would say really extremely critical time in our country's history. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, we're hoping to get as many people involved because, look, unlike the Democratic Party, the Republican Party and especially veterans, we want people to have as as much information and B, as many options as possible because competition breeds success. And that's what we're looking to do with this this, uh, foundation. That's right. Well, Carl, thank you so much for your time talking with us. And we wish you well uh, in this new year, 2017, and all, all the best things for you. Thank you, Gail. You too. I'd like to thank the Gun Owners of America for working to preserve a woman's right to choose to defend herself. You can learn more about them at gunowners.org. You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. Joining me now is Will Thomas on Right in D.C., and we are very excited to have him as a guest on the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Will. Yeah, thanks for having me here. So you are a senior in high school now, is that right? That's right. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this news event that had such a big impact on your life. Yeah, so several years back in 2011, there was a tragedy over in Afghanistan, in which 30 of our special operations members in the American Armed Forces lost their lives and the biggest loss of lives in special operations history. And I was 12 at the time, I think. And I heard about it. I didn't know that much about the military, but I, I could tell it was a pretty big deal just by how much coverage it was getting. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized it was, it was really sad and it really bothered me. And... So I was thinking that maybe there might be some way to make that pretty awful situation a little bit better. Did and you have family members who were in the military? or, or how, Why did that particular tragedy affect you so much? I, I don't really have any direct ties, but I could tell just, just by the magnitude of what was going on and the more I learned about it that it really was a big deal. And I, I started looking into the lives of some of the the men that were lost, and I realized that these were really spectacular men, the best of the best, and and it was just really a shame that they all lost their lives in such a big catastrophic event. Um, and so I just I wanted to to try and do something. And what did you decide to do at twelve years of age? Um, I thought this was in August, and so I decided that over Labor Day weekend, about a month later. I was going to go out, and basketball was my favorite sport at the time, and I was going to go out and do a marathon basketball shooting challenge. And I ran the idea by my parents, and they were on board with it and reached out to some extended family members and close friends, and they said they would be happy to support me uh, either financially or come by and rebound for me or whatever. And I ended up going through with it, and we ended up raising $50,000 over that weekend. Wow. And... And I ended up, the goal was to make 17,000 free throws, um, 1,000 for each of the Navy SEALs that died on that helicopter crash in Afghanistan. And so that that premise, the response that we got was really spectacular. And I was amazed at the support of the people I knew and people I didn't even know just getting behind the cause because 
that just affirmed my notion that the cause was a really worthy one. Have you had the opportunity to meet with any of the family members of the fallen special operators? Yeah, that's actually been, that was pretty much the reason that we decided to continue the mission. Back in 2011, one of the Navy SEALs that I was actually shooting for in that initial Labor Day shooting challenge, her or his widow actually was from my hometown of McLean, Virginia, and she was home visiting her parents at the time. And she just stopped by her house, knocked on the door, and she introduced herself. And I recognized the last name, and I was like, wait, you're not that Kelsall. Wow. Her, name, her name's Victoria Kelsall. And, and that... And her her reaction, what she said to me, was basically, look, like, I've spoken to a bunch of the other widows and family members and children, and they're really appreciative of what you're doing, and I don't know if you've considered it, but I think you should keep this going. And I really hadn't. I, I really intended it to just be, I hadn't thought beyond that weekend, but how powerful her words were was really what motivated me to, to take it to the next level from there and just expand and expand and expand and continue to expand over the last five years. So interactions with people like Victoria have definitely been the most instrumental part for it and also the most gratifying in terms of all the work that I'm putting in. It's, it's really being appreciated by the people on the other side. Well, I have to stay, say that story gave me chills thinking about a 12-year-old uh, interacting with uh, the widow of a hero. It's just uh, astonishing. Most people don't have that kind of opportunity. Do you plan to partner with any other groups that uh, you have in the past, or has that have you had that opportunity? Yeah, we've we've been able to partner with a ton of different businesses and nonprofits mainly um, that we just reached out to to see um, see if they shared, shared the cause and shared interest in it. And we've gotten some incredible response from several large corporations and also big national nonprofits. That Do you want to give out to, a shout out to any of those organizations? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, like we started out with the Navy SEAL foundation and then we moved on to the red circle foundation and, and just collaborating with a bunch of those, the station foundation, gold star teen adventures, those are some some of the huge uh, charities that we've partnered with, um, and they were great because, like I said, I didn't really know much about the cause until I was able to look into it and learn from the people at those kinds of organizations. And they they're the ones who are close with the family members, and they're the ones that know what they need when they need it. So we just we raise the money, we do the challenges, we do the the gear collaborations and the t-shirt fundraisers, and we, we funnel the money through people like them who really know what they're doing, and they make sure the money goes where it's most needed to who most needs it. What kind of support do you think you would need to move the organization and the mission to the next level? Um, just, just more of the same what we've been getting. Every time I reach out to somebody, they're really, really supportive of me and, and interested in helping me because... They know our special operators are the reason that we're able to be free as a country and be the best country in the world. And um, so whenever I reach out to somebody for help, they're, they're always ready to give it. So I think just that continued support that I'm confident that I'll continue to be lucky enough to receive, I think that'll be the biggest thing. If people would like to learn more about Operation Hawkeye, where can they go? Yeah, so Hawkeye's all over social media, so 
Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can look us up at op Operation Hawkeye or op underscore Hawkeye, um, or online at www.ophawkeye.com. Hawkeye spelled H-A-W-K-E-Y-E. Um, but there's a ton of information on there. Uh, it's a pretty pretty cool site. So there's a lot of information that that can be pretty helpful about what we're trying to do and what some other related causes are trying to do. And you post on social media pictures of the fallen. That seems like something you do probably daily. Uh, how do yes. you find those pictures? And have you gotten feedback on those those pictures on social media? Uh, just they're all around the internet. There are several memorial sites online that have information about each of the fallen special operators going back to uh, like early into the 20th century. So the history part of it's pretty interesting to me, but. Um, the feedback's always cool. People, people like to see um, these heroes remembered, and they and it's not necessarily readily available to the average person. You really have to go seek them out. So that's been one of our goals: is the the awareness part of the mission is just helping civilians back home learn about the sacrifices of these people thousands of miles away because it's not necessarily readily available to the average person. And a lot of teenagers who are in school have requirements for community service. Uh, and a lot of times, I, I remember feeling this way sometimes as well, that other people decide what your community service activities are. And uh, it doesn't seem like it's really a focus on making a difference. It's more just checking a box and, and fulfilling a requirement. How do you think your experiences in founding this organization can inform other teenagers about how to make what seems like just a requirement from high school or a educational institution be something that is not only impactful for the world, but also personally meaningful in their growth? Yeah, that's another thing that's been huge for me is realizing um, that like when you put your mind something, when you have a cause that you're passionate about, um, if you, if you put forth the effort, you really can make a difference. So I would say just never write yourself off and, and don't do something just because it's easy and somebody's telling you to do it. Um, in terms of community service, you need to find a cause that you're passionate about because it, it has to be more than just checking a box. Um, and oftentimes you're not necessarily checking a box at all. You're just doing what you think is right and doing what you think you need to do. Um, so just choose a cause that you're passionate about first and foremost, um, and don't necessarily write yourself off just because it seems like there's a there's a full plate on your hands. Um, you can you can always do something. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Right in DC today, and we wish you well with your graduation and uh, the furthering the mission of Operation Hawkeye. All right, thank you so much. I'd like to thank the Franklin Forum for working to help students gain an appreciation of our democratic principles. You can learn more about them at their website, Prometheum.org. Welcome back to Right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. Here's her guest in the hot seat. We're excited to have joining us today Aparna Mather, who is a resident scholar in economic policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute right here in Washington, D.C. Aparna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Gail. 
Well, we have just about a a couple weeks before we have a new administration coming to town. And this new administration has really kind of tapped into a lot of Americans' frustration that a lot of the manufacturing jobs have gone overseas and they haven't been replaced with higher uh, skilled, higher technological type of jobs. and. Uh, this this new administration has really tapped into this. I understand you have done some research and writing about this. That's right. Yeah. So, so I was looking, you know, historically what has been happening to manufacturing jobs in the U.S. It's absolutely true. If you went back to the 1970s, you know, there were about 19 million people employed in manufacturing. Today, it's down to 13 million. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, manufacturing jobs exist, but they've been automated away. And so, you know, people are not getting those jobs. It, there are machines that are replacing people in those jobs. At the same time, we seeing, uh, you know, a lot of jobs are being offshored to countries that offer lower wages and, you know, have other competitive features, you know, including maybe tax policy. And so it's really interesting. I think what Donald Trump did, what President-elect Trump did was to tap into that. He went to places where people had lost those jobs and he sort of, you know, empathized with the fact that I understand that you've lost these jobs and I'm going to do something about it. And I think you're right. Absolutely right. He tapped into that in a way that, you know, Hillary Clinton didn't do. I mean, their message seemed to be, yes, you know, we've faced a lot of changes, but things are going fine. You know, employment is great. You know, people are coming back to the labor market. Everything is great. And I think what he said was, no, I understand. Things are not great for you. And he totally tapped into that. And I think we've seen a lot of public statements and information out there from the top uh, CEOs of companies, including Tim Cook of Apple, trying to explain how Americans find ourselves in this situation. What what do you think or what what specifically has Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, said about the reasons for why we have lost these manufacturing jobs? That's a great example because Tim Cook, you know, he was interviewed, uh, I think, a year back, and he basically said, look, the reason we're not producing anymore in the U.S. is because we're not finding people with the right skills. And, you know, there must be multiple other factors. But he did talk about the fact that we we have what we call the skills gap. And what is the skills gap? The skills gap is essentially this idea that there are companies out there who are looking for people with the right skills to put into these manufacturing jobs, and they're not finding them. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's not real. You know, the skills gap is not real. If companies wanted to hire people, they would just offer higher wages. But actually, if you look at, you know, surveys of these companies, they're saying, you know, we're willing to offer people higher wages, but we're still not finding people who have exactly the right skills to take on these jobs. And I think what's happened in manufacturing is that there's been, a you know, a, a shift towards really high-skill jobs. There was a time when manufacturing was literally all about hand you know, working with your hands and, you know, operating machinery and so on. And now there's been a shift to higher value added and higher skilled work, which means being having the ability to use computers, having the ability to operate a robot, having the ability to sort of work with the new machines rather than sort of being a substitute for a new machine. And the fact is, the fact, you know, that people are not investing in those skills, the, you know, they, there are... Uh, 
a, a lot of people out there who are not investing in STEM education. There are a lot of people out there. And it's not just about, you know, going to college and getting that degree in math or science or computing. It's actually about having the experience of working at those jobs with those machines, you know, being able to figure out code, whether it's, you know, programming, whether it's electric, electrical engineering, whatever it is, you know, those skills are actually lacking. And what's interesting to me is that we have all this talk about getting jobs back from overseas, when the real issue is we have, we have about 322,000 vacancies. The most recent data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows that we have 322,000 job openings in manufacturing today that employers are saying, you know, we have these jobs available, come and work for us, and we still can't find people. So, so it's not so much to me about, oh, can, you know, will Carrier keep 1,000 jobs in the U.S. or will Sprint promise to create you know, whatever jobs it's planning to create in the U.S., it's literally saying we have jobs, you know, we have employers who are ready to hire and we can't find the people to do it. Well, and should you need, should you need a college degree to get a manufacturing job? I mean, plenty of people don't, they don't like school, they want to get out there, they want to work, they want to start being productive members of society and they see college as a complete waste of time. So why we have these CEOs out there saying we don't have this, we have the skill gap and, you know, like you were talking about going to college and getting math science degrees, does that need to to be a prerequisite for having these That's jobs. That's absolutely right. You don't need them. And in fact, what a lot of manufacturing employers will tell you is that, you know, it's great. Okay. You went to high school or you, you know, you, you, you're even in ninth grade or whatever. We are still willing to, you know, come, come to our firms. We'll offer you paid apprenticeship programs. There are, there are many states that are offering these programs. South Carolina is a great example of that, where these companies have basically tied up and it's a lot of initiative at the local level, uh, at the state level as well where community colleges and high schools are tying up with these employers and what these companies are doing is they're saying come and work for us you know we'll teach you we'll give you a two-year training uh, we'll pay you during that training so you're not graduating with a lot of debt like you would in a regular college degree you know you do four years of college you have a massive amount of student debt and you still don't have the skills that these people need and instead of that you're saying okay you know we'll give you apprenticeships we'll give you paid apprenticeships come and work for us um, at the end of those two years we you will have what we need and we will hire you and I think that's a best you know that's a great option for a lot of young workers today who are so undecided about is the four-year college degree really worth it for me and we're seeing how the youth you know there's tremendous youth unemployment people are graduating they don't have jobs and this is a, you know, to me, this option of working directly with an employer, learning skills on the job, I think is hugely beneficial. And I think we should be promoting it a lot around the country. Right. And you're one of your fellow scholars at the American Enterprise Institute, Charles Murray, has yeah. written a little bit about this too. And it makes me think of him writing about internships and how <laughs> students from wealthy families can afford to get these unpaid internships where they get the steps onto the road to success. They get the experience. They get the, you know, something they can put on their resume. But um, on this type of apprenticeship, do you think that, you know, this is, it sounds like it's mostly company driven. Are there policies that the government, local government, state governments, federal government can put into place to support this type of opportunity for young people? 
And that's exactly true. You know, so, so the South Carolina example that I mentioned is it's actually a state program where the state is saying we'll give the, give these employers tax credits, and you know if they if they hire an apprentice, we'll give you a two thousand dollar or four thousand dollar tax credit program uh, that will allow you to hire these people, and it offsets some of the cost of getting these people on board. Um, but at the same time, I think what. A lot of the you know innovation is coming from companies themselves because they realize that they are they have to meet their needs for a workforce, uh, two years, five years, seven years down the line, and, and the only way to do that is to really start training people today. So yes, you know states can offer incentives through tax credits. They can encourage more um, uh, you know tie-ups between community colleges, between high schools, and between these companies to to create that you know net work and create foster that environment that encourages these kind of apprenticeship programs to happen um and so you need, you know, you need initiatives at the local level. You need initiatives from the state government, but you also need, you know, and companies are doing it already. They, they're forming their own sort of trade groups and saying, okay, we we will have. I was, you know, following these sort of competitions that they keep organizing. That you know, come up with the best uh, sort of forklift that that you can imagine. You know, computerized forklift, and and they're offering prizes and you know, encouraging students to think outside the box about how they would do it. And I think the reason they are doing that is also not just so much to to have a skilled workforce ready but to re- to make people realize that manufacturing is not just what it was you know 10 20 years ago manufacturing is very different it's automate you know there's a lot of uh, technical skills needed there's a lot of computing needed it's a very high skilled uh, business and so the type of people you need today are very different from the people you needed 20 years ago and so i think they uh, you know, taking a lot of initiatives to recruit younger people to try to change that image of what manufacturing is today, so that they're more you know interested in off you know pursuing those careers in manufacturing than they uh, than what their parents might be telling them. Hey, oh, manufacturing jobs are dirty. You know, you don't right. need to go work factory anymore. And that's interesting. Right. And another organization that historically has helped to train young people to become productive members of society is the military. How do you think military training is somewhat similar in benefits to this apprenticeship that you're talking about? That's right. You know, so what you're seeing is a lot of veterans, you know, come out with skills that they don't know would be useful in manufacturing today. You know, they, they know how to operate equipment. They know how to operate, you know, weapons. And uh, and it's not just about weapons, but it's a lot. It's very technical. It's computing. It's, uh, you know, making sure engineer, engineering is done a certain way. It's very high tech. And those people also have careers in manufacturing today that are opening up to them because manufacturers are realizing, wow, the, you know, these guys have the skills we need. And they're just sort of languishing on the side because that that information about what manufacturing needs today and the skills that they're coming out with when they finish their active duty, I think that information gap uh, exists. And, and so I think, you know, if we start, and, and a lot of companies are doing it, if they say, well, we're going to reach out to these veterans and we, we, we're going to inform them of the skills that you have, we really value, you know, that's a great tie-up to have. That's a great, um, um, you know, opportunity for for those people to get back into the labor market rather than trying to figure out, you know, I had a military career and now basically I come back into civic li- civil life and I, I don't know what I'm, you know, capable of doing. And so I think it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, there is a potential for increasing those tie-ups and, uh, and that's, uh, that will be really critical and useful in the long run. 
you write about these issues and talk about these issues from a very high level, very intelligent, very academic, uh, research, data-driven. We're also seeing kind of... uh, people out in the public sphere like Mike Rowe talking yeah. about it from a more popular perspective. That's and I right. know you've seen a lot of the stuff that he's talked about. How do you think that, that the way he communicates that message is resonating with people and how that might influence the policy debate in Washington? You know, that's a great thing because when when I watch his shows, I think he's really, you know, he, he hammers home the point that there are a lot of skilled trades out there that people sort of dismiss. And, and I'm not talking about, you know, younger workers or, but, but even, you know, parents. As parents, we dismiss these jobs and we say, I don't want my kid, you know, to go into, like, become a septic tank cleaner or to become a plumber or, or to become a carpenter. You know, why should my kid have to go and do that? And I think what he, what he hammers home is the point that People in these jobs are doing really well. They're they're very happy with their work. The work is, you know, not what we assume it is. Yes, it's tough. It's very hands-on. It's what you would call a dirty job. But people are leading good lives. They're paying. They're getting good wages. They have a good job. They have a career. And these are and these are the traits that we that America is in fact in many ways losing out on. You know, these are things that we can invest in because they're not going to be offshored. You know, you, you're not going to call a plumber from overseas. You, you need somebody in the country. Right. And the fact is that the you know the 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 newer generation is not investing in these skill trades anymore. They don't want to take up these jobs, and therefore the wages that these jobs are offering today are much higher. You know, it's a skilled workforce. They, they're in demand. You can you can pretty much, you know, uh, in some places, write your paycheck for what, what you want to be paid as a plumber. Uh, you know, I do it. Yeah, I, I, I'm shocked at how much I have to pay, pay somebody <laughs> to come in to clean, you know, whatever, to fix stuff in my house. Right. And, and and that's you know that's another option for people out there you know don't dismiss a lot of these careers because and he brings that home home that point beautifully because he goes into these places and he's you know he's showing you what you know what does this mean today what is the career that you're exposing yourself to and um, uh, and I think it's appealing to a lot of people you see and 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 the point that he makes I think is also which I think has started resonating more with people is simply. Four-year college is not the answer to everything. You know, we, we don't have right. to send everybody to get an academic degree. We have a lot of unemployed people out there with college degrees. Yeah, yeah, they're doing better than people without college degrees, but even with college degrees, they're not doing as well as you would have expected them to do. And so there's no harm in sort of looking beyond, looking outside that box, looking at different career options, looking at these, you know, uh, whether it's these what we call dirty jobs or looking at even within manufacturing the kind of jobs and the the way they have evolved over the last few years and saying, yeah, I'm ready to start on that job now. I can learn the trade today. I don't need to get a four-year degree to do it. Well, do you have any parting thoughts for the Trump administration? Earlier, you mentioned about the corporate tax rate and tax policy can influence uh, America's economic growth and the job sector. Certainly, he's put on the table that he wants to take the corporate tax rate down from 35% to something that's more competitive to the other 34 countries of the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. So do you have any other parting thoughts for the Trump administration to make good on their promises to make America great again? Right, exactly. I mean, you know, I am, I've been writing about corporate tax reform for a while. 
I am completely on board with you when you say that the you know the U.S. corporate tax rate and the U.S. corporate tax system in general is very out of line with what's happening in the rest of the OECD countries. You know, we have we tax corporations at the 35% rate, which is way higher than what other countries do. We have a worldwide system of taxation where you know we tax multinationals even when they are operating overseas, and we definitely need to change that. So I'm very excited to see that he is talking about tax reform, and it seems like the House. And you know uh, Donald Trump's team are engaged in talks to to get about tax reform, and I think that will affect investment, that will affect jobs in the U.S. And you know I'm very hopeful for that. Uh, at the same time, I think you know instead of sort of focusing on what jobs we can bring back, I think we also need to push for how we can fill existing jobs in the U.S. You know, we have, whether it's in manufacturing, whether we look at the country as a whole, it the, when you look at unemployment data and when you look at the labor market, the perception seems to be, oh my God, there are no jobs out there for people. Right. And that's actually not true. You know, the, the truth is there are job openings. There are over 5 million job openings in the U.S., there are about 300,000 job openings within manufacturing and and the and the and the trick is really to tell people you know what kind of jobs are employers looking for today what can how can we help you to acquire the skills that these employers need so that you can go work in these jobs so so you know aside from this platform of okay we need tax reform which i absolutely agree with which will bring about investment and job creation in the us i think we also need to recognize that there is another gap which is completely you know probably fillable and fixable within the country just looking at sort of domestic issues where we have vacancies and we have unemployed workers and we need to f have a policy that matches them, that says, okay, we recognize what's missing here and we are going to do our best, whether it's through apprenticeships, whether it's through tax credits, whether it's through, you know, other kinds of job training that will allow workers and employers to match. And I think that is a holistic policy. Uh, that's a holistic jobs policy to get Americans working again. Aparna, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope we can have you back uh, maybe in six months to see if yeah. the administration has able to, been able to put any of these at least policy ideas out there. Really appreciate you joining us on Right in DC today. Thank you so much for having me. I love the dog. <laughs> thank you so much. I'd like to mention the great work going on at Best Buddies. They create opportunities for leadership growth for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. You can learn more about them at bestbuddies.org. Welcome back to Right in D.C., and here's one of Gail's favorite things to do in D.C. And we're back on Right in D.C., going to share two of my favorite things to do in Washington, D.C. The first, you should mosey on over to the Library of Congress. The library was founded in 1800, and it's the oldest federal cultural institution in our nation. Now, it was originally housed in the Capitol building, but when the British burned the Capitol building in 1814, they destroyed the entire 
collection of the library. You might not remember this fun fact, but one of our presidents, Thomas Jefferson, founder of my university, the University of Virginia, had an amazing library collection at his house, Monticello, in Charlottesville, Virginia. And when the library lost its collection due to the burning by the British soldiers, Congress approved the purchase of Thomas Jefferson's personal library of almost 7,000 books. And do you know how much they spent? Those books only cost the taxpayer almost $24,000 back then. I mean, just imagine how much that would cost now. One of my favorite places to go in the Library of Congress is to go to the reading room. It is this beautiful room with the most amazing artwork in it, and it is just such an incredible ambiance to sit down and have the life of the mind while you're enjoying the beauty of the human accomplishment through architecture and art. When you're done with that and you're hungry, which you will be, the Capitol Congressional Buildings are very close by. You can go check out where your representatives are, either in the Cannon House office building, the Longworth House office building, or Rayburn office building. When I was in high school, I worked for a congressman whose office was in the Longworth House office building. One of the most fun parts of the day when I worked there was to go down to the congressional dining room in the Longworth House office building, where you can still dine just as a normal person. You don't have to be a congressman. You don't have to be an an intern or a staff member. You can go dine at this cafeteria and chances are you'll see a congressman or two or other interesting people who are up on Capitol Hill to lobby their representatives. So definitely go check out the Library of Congress. Make sure you get a tour. Be sure to go into the reading room and then wander over to one of the congressional office buildings and enjoy a meal. And you might be able to see someone that you'd like to either give cheers to or jeers to for the way that they voted on issues that you care about. You can like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter and hear me every week on iTunes. This is Gail Trotter right in D.C. Music provided by local band Trio Caliente. Visit their website, triocaliente.com, or sample their music on iTunes.